Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. Hey, Jay, you know, it's been a while since we have done a listener mail show, but that's what we're doing today. So we've got a bunch of listener questions all queued up and ready to go. So are you ready? I'm ready. All right, let's do it. We'll start with an email from John, who writes in part, How about exploring military expenditures, comparing and contrasting the view that we need a larger, say, Navy with those asking for a focus on better body armor or preparing for a traditional war versus more of a series of smaller conflicts? I want to learn what the evidence-based perspectives are from center right to center left. My personal perspective is that every dollar spent on a gun is one not spent on our most vulnerable citizens. But I have intelligent, fact-driven friends whose values I largely respect who help me understand that there are a lot of gray areas in the military expenditures question that I would love hearing explored. Not just to spend or not, but how to spend or where to spend operationally. So, Jay, well, what are your what are your thoughts on that uh, military spending? How we should spend it? Where we should spend it? Or you know, if we're spending too much of it? Well, I'd I'd say, uh, you, you know, for the conservative answer, are we spending too much? Probably always. Uh, in that, you know, do we do we get the best deal on things? Are things overpriced? There was, you know, always there's been that history of uh, our our military contracts overpriced, uh, and I think that's that's part of just part of the beast that you deal with. Um, in large part, I would say, yeah, I, I think our, our military has become the the more mobile, lighter sort of force that that uh, it needs to be. Um, you know, and I understand that the, you and I will differ on on the wisdom of some of the, the wars that that uh, we fought or the military um, uh, adventures we've we've been involved in over the last decade or so. Uh, but we we have pared down from the you know the the 80s era cold war um uh you know millions of russians pouring across the fold of gap type vision to a a more mobile uh strike force now and again it it turned out we did need bigger troop strengths uh in some of these areas uh and i think we've sort of accommodated that but but if you look at sort of what the the military can do from a precision uh standpoint i i think I think we're getting we're getting the bang for our buck, uh, and we're we're still the, the the strongest military in the world. And obviously, we can go back to talk about other things about do we need to upgrade capacities and do we have enough carriers and uh, those types of things. Um, but I think we're doing doing well there. Uh, I would I would disagree with the premise of of every dollar spent on a gun is something that's not directed to social services. Uh, because I, I, I just don't, I just don't think that's the case. I think even if you didn't have that military spending, I'm not sure that it necessarily, uh, reflects as money that is then spent on, uh, on, on some, uh, social services. Uh, and I'd also say that the, at least very much in the conservative view, viewpoint, uh, military expenditures, this is something that, uh, people can't be reasonably expected to do themselves and conservatives view a strong national defense uh, as as one of the key places where they that is the federal government's job, uh, and and ought to be uh, uh, you know funded to the, to its uh, a a a healthy extent. Let's <laughs> not say fullest, but a healthy extent. Yeah, well, you know, just to be a little more uh, specific as to what we're spending, um, uh, defense spending is right around six hundred billion dollars. That's the that's not including the stuff that's 
squirreled away in various other uh, can't be talked about publicly sort Secret of accounts. Stuff. Exactly. Yeah. But it's at least $600 billion a year. And to give you a sense of, of how much that is kind of in more of a context, that's over half of all discretionary spending in, in the budget. And also, we are by far the biggest spender on defense. Uh, number two is China at uh, right around $146 billion. So, I mean, we dwarf the next, really, we, we spend almost as much as the other top 15 countries combined in terms of military spending. So it's a huge, huge difference. And, you know, as to what we're getting from that and whether or not we could spend some of that money um, uh, better in other ways, I, I think... I think certainly that there are efficiencies that we could get and we need to, I feel, I've argued this a number of times before, that we need to, we need to reevaluate some of our priorities in terms of spending. And so, I, you know, it's, there's certainly, I would agree with you, Jay, there's not a one-to-one correspondence just because we spend $1 less on military doesn't mean we're going to spend $1 more on domestic programs for whomever or whatever. But also, there, it is a limited it is a limited pie. And given the fact that many Republicans who are so, can be so uh, harsh on cutting spending in so many other ways tend to just want to throw money at the military. I, you know, I think that that's something that, that we need to take a look at. I I don't, I certainly think that the United States has unique role in the world uh, in a military sense, and that's not going to change. And that's probably, I think, a good thing. But I certainly think we could keep, we could maintain that role, spending considerably less and taking a certain amount of that money and putting it into programs for uh, our, our, our neediest or putting it into programs for uh, infrastructure or our economic growth and that sort of thing. Now, now as to what I'd, I'd point out, though, that that when we talk about uh, discretionary spending versus non-discretionary spending, most of those the social service programs we're talking about are in that non-discretionary entitlement batch. Uh, you know, so I, I, I mean, just take that for 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 what you want. I'm just saying that to kind of put things in perspective. That uh, while our military spending is sort of discretionary. Uh, the social service stuff, uh, you know, I'm talking about Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, that is not. Just Yeah, just to be clear, that's a good point, that the top three things in the budget and in its entirety that we spend money on, Social Security, by far the biggest one, uh, Medicare and defense are pretty close, closely tied, and then Medicaid is, you know, well below that. So, so yeah, that's a good, that's a good thing to, to bring up, certainly. Now, you know, as to more kind of... Uh, uh, nuts and bolts level of what we should spend on, you know, carriers or body armor, or that sort of thing. I'm certainly not qualified to make those kind of decisions, obviously, you know, or don't have the expertise. And I'm guessing, Jay, that that's probably outside of your wheelhouse as well. Yeah. And, and those are, those are decisions that we depend on people who are uh, really sort of experts in the field. And that's, that's neither our expertise uh, and, you know, these are people who, who, who fight the wars and, and people who look at what wars were likely to fight and have a, a, a very, you know, de- uh, in-depth knowledge of what our current capacities are and current problems yeah. are. And uh, that, that ain't us. I think, though, one thing. <laughs> at least we, it's not me. <laughs> well, I think one thing we can say is that oftentimes when we talk about military spending, a lot of it focuses on 
procurement in terms of well manufacturing jobs and so forth whether it's for uh whether it's for uh, fighters or whether it's for uh you know body armor or what have you because that creates jobs in factories and congressional districts and so forth. There's a lot less focus oftentimes on how we're compensating the people who do this for us and how we care for them after they're done serving, you know, and there have been repeated scandals about, you know, awful treatment and in VA centers and huge wait times and so forth. And it makes sense from a political standpoint, because that's not the sort of spending that members of Congress get very excited about as opposed to, Hey, this plant, it's creating parts for a new, you know, a new for our district. Exactly. Exactly. And so that's, that's been a continuing problem. And just due to the nature of politics, that's unlikely to be, you know, uh, solved certainly anytime soon. All right. Uh, before we move on, we'd like to thank a new sponsor. That's blue bottle coffee. You know, not too long ago, I made a trip out to my mailbox and I was actually really excited to see my first delivery of blue bottle coffee because I'm, I'm sort of a coffee snob. I mean, I brew it in this single cup Japanese pour over thing that takes these special filters that are all written in Japanese. Yeah. And of course, I grind my own beans. I've got this uh, Italian burr grinder that costs... Uh, well, let's, let's not, I want to think about how much it costs, but anyway. You're blowing your rep, rep as a man of the people here. You know, yeah, there you go. But the point is, is I know coffee and blue bottle coffee seriously impressed me. When I opened the box, the first thing I looked for was the roasted on date because that's a dead giveaway for good coffee. If there's no date listed or if they only give you one of these best buy dates, uh, that's a bad sign. Now, my blue bottle coffee was roasted just two days before it got to me. And that, wow, I thought that's better than any coffee I've ever gotten through the mail before. And I bought a lot of coffee and the taste was exceptional. I mean, I always try a new coffee plain at first without any creamer or stevia or any other stuff so I can get the kind of the purest possible experience. And this coffee, my blue bottle coffee didn't need anything to taste better than any light roast that I can ever recall having. And the nice thing is that maybe you're not into light roast. That's, that's cool. Blue bottle has something for everyone's palate. If you don't like those lighter kind of things, they have these seriously deep chocolatey espresso. So, I mean, you really, there's a range of stuff that will suit everyone who loves coffee. And, you know, in the past, I've mentioned how important sustainability is to me. And that's why I think it's great that Blue Bottle works directly with farmers all over the world to source the most delicious and sustainable coffee they can find. And they've got a great deal for Politics Guys listeners. Go to bluebottlecoffee.com slash TPG for $10 off your first coffee subscription order. And that's bluebottlecoffee.com slash TPG for $10 off. Once more, because third time's a charm, it'll stick in your head this way. Bluebottlecoffee.com slash TPG. Seriously, great stuff. Check it out. Okay, moving on to our next listener mail question. You ready, Jay? I'm ready. Okay, <clears throat> we have Matt who writes, Hey guys, first let me say I really appreciate what you're doing. It's been quite a while since I've heard real political discourse that includes a sheer understanding of facts and reality. Here in Canada, the situation is better than the States, but it's still basically a bunch of echo chambers with very few people trying to understand where people outside of their bubble are coming from. So that's a nice way to start. I always worry when they start so nice that maybe we're going to get nailed here. So. Exactly. <laughs> but. <laughs> but yeah. No. Here, uh, Matt goes on to say, something has been bothering me recently. As someone in tech, I see some of the changes coming right on the horizon, but it seems like they rarely get discussed by policymakers in any real way. We're only a few years away from self-driving cars, and once that happens, the entire transportation industry is going to go the way of mining and manufacturing. 
self-driving cars are really just continuing a trend of massively disruptive automation. As a programmer, I actually benefit from this benefit from this personally, but consider the human cost to so many jobs being eliminated so quickly, one of the biggest problems facing our society today. The far left has answers to that. As large segments of the population are put out of work, publicly funded higher education becomes more important since it allows for transitioning into other professions. On top of that, there's the acknowledgement that as a group, we have the resources today to allow for things like public education or even a basic income. The problem is that the vast majority of those resources lie in the bank accounts of a small amount of people who have so much wealth that they will never be able to spend all of it. Apart from that, what would be a more centrist takes on the problem? I would see center-left pushing for welfare expansion, but that isn't really an answer that actually works that well, more than just a band-aid for a problem that isn't com completely inhumane. I'm actually extremely curious as to what the center-right answer would be, since it is hard to have a market-based solution when we are basically talking about the elimination of major markets. Friends I have who lean that way sort of give me a, uh, I don't know, when I ask them. So, Jay, uh, center-right, that's you. What do you think, well, man? I, you know, I, I will start by confessing my ignorance and sort of saying when I don't know, uh, but qualifying with uh, that's okay. Um, you know, if you were to look at, you know, you go back to New Bedford, Massachusetts in the, uh, you know, say the 18, 1880s or, or something, um, this was a huge, huge industry was the whaling industry. Uh, this provided the oil that uh, lit most of uh, most of the United States, uh, a lot of the world. Um, and and it was it was a huge uh, industry for not just that state and that region, but for the entire country. And almost overnight, uh, that that industry vanished. Uh, and those people went uh, went somewhere else. Uh, now, you, I mean, I, I kind of say, I mean, look, I mean, um, uh, Thomas Edison saved a lot more whales than Greenpeace uh, will ever. Uh, and I think this is one of the things that conservatives look at, that technology and these advances are things that are outside and beyond the control of the government. Uh, the good news is that, as we've we've seen, typically you get more jobs being created than than are taken away. There there's more spinoff from these these new industries uh, than uh, than than disappear, um, and they tend to be better jobs, higher paying jobs. So that's that's like the macroeconomic answer. Uh, can I say specifically what can we do to to ease that transition? Uh, I I don't know. I I think education being uh, having. Uh, the ability to re-educate people to go into new fields is something that's that's worthwhile uh, because the new fields necessarily tend to, to require more education than, uh, than than what's gone before. That wasn't the case, uh, you know, in, in the 1880s or, or at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. You could you could move from one unskilled profession to another unskilled profession. Um, so, I, I, you know, I, I think the right would would be OK with uh, with that sort of thing. Um, but, but I, I think there's there's just a different worldview in that uh, these things can be controlled by the government or, or or changed by the government. I think most folks on the right would say no. It's this is what happens, and uh, you have to let the market work to create the next uh, the next big industry. Um, 
you know, and again, you, you can look even at the past couple decades of, um, uh, you know, companies that have, have completely changed what they're, what they're doing, how they operate, uh, um, and into the, the benefit of, of, I think, larger, I mean, Apple used to make computers and it still does, but it's primary, primary revenue is, is online sales. Um, and these are, that's sort of a more of a micro view, but, uh, I, I think you just have to let the, the market work and, and do the best you can to predict these changes. Uh, driverless cars, I think may create a whole, whole new industries, um, uh, and, uh, things we haven't even seen yet. And I think sometimes when you take too many steps to, to try to balance that, you, you stop that creation. I don't know if that's a good answer or not, Mike. I'm, well, I, I think it's an optimistic answer. Uh, and it was a long answer. You know, it's no surprise that you have, you are more optimistic about, uh, the market's ability to make life better for everyone than I am. I mean, that's why you're on the right and I'm on the left on these things. I think though, I will say, I agree with you that your description of how markets have always worked or have almost always worked is, has been accurate since the industrial revolution up until fairly recently. But I think what we're seeing now is a fundamental change in this is you can only educate people up so much as our machines get smarter and smarter and can do more and more, you know, we, we, we find that it becomes increasingly more difficult to create these new jobs for people. And so I do think that this isn't just more of the same. I think we're seeing a very clear disruption point. Now, uh, we're, well, we're, I don't disagree that's a, a big disruption point. But, but I think that the traditional answers just won't work anymore. I mean, yeah, traditionally it's been the case that, well, you, you, you lose one sector and the market creates another sector. I still think that will happen, but I think that those sectors are going to be technology dominated and not people dominated. And so I think something like a basic income is going to be inevitable essentially. And for, for, for listeners who want to get a better sense of some of this stuff, there are a number of books that I would recommend. Uh, Tyler Cowen has written some really uh, not too long and very approachable things. Uh, the Great Stagnation is one I highly recommend or Average is Over is another good one. But there's a lot of stuff, a lot of economists who are looking at this now and who would agree that this is a very, we're entering in a very different period. And where I agree with you on this, Jay, is that it we we can fall into the danger of reacting too quickly and too on too massive of a scale and we don't know exactly how things are going to sort of shake out but on the other hand we don't want to be entirely unprepared and just be entirely reactive so I, you know i think this is just a, essentially a, a sea change in in the economy and in the work lives of americans we're going to be seeing from this point on and I, I don't know really any good answers but i think it's going to have to involve at some point something like uh, a basic income but we will see all right uh forget to our next uh before we get to our Next question, uh, we'd like to thank our next sponsor for today's show, Casper. You know, I've told everyone already about my um, fraught history with mattresses and how it finally ended not too long ago, thankfully, when I got completely fed up and decided to get a Casper mattress. And I can tell you that this is the nicest mattress I've ever owned. And I'm, I'm very hard to please when it comes to these things. I'm a very picky kind of person. Um, and getting it incredibly easy. No trip to the mattress store, so no commission-based marked-up prices like with so many other mattresses. It's a quick, pleasant online experience, and boom, you get an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. And 
One of the things I love about Casper's mattress is that it's designed with this combination of supportive memory foams that gives you just the right amount of sink and bounce. So it's not like if you think, well, I'm just going to sink right into this thing. No, not at all the case. Also, it's really breathable, which means it sleeps cool. And that's super important to me because when I sleep, I put off in the heat to like power a small Midwestern town or something like that. So that would be a, a mattress that slept hot would be a non-starter to me. Not the case here. Now, I hope you believe me about this, but the great thing is you don't have to believe me. Casper has over 20,000 reviews with an average of 4.8 stars, an average. Plus, there's free shipping to the U.S. and Canada and a 100-night risk-free deal. If you don't love it, they will pick it up and refund you everything. So, you cannot lose, right? Plus, it's designed, developed, and assembled in the USA, which is nice. And best of all, Paul Sky's listeners get $50 toward any mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash TPG. That's casper.com slash TPG. Terms and conditions apply. All right, moving on to our next question, Jay. Let's see who we have here. We have Chris from Morgantown, West Virginia, who writes, as a moderate, I like to make sure I get voices from both sides of the political aisle when it comes to news, reaction, opinions, and so on. Even if I don't always agree with them on everything, I think it's better to like people from multiple political angles. So my question is, who would both of you recommend that people look up who you respect but are on the opposite end of the political spectrum from you? That's a great question. Wow. Um that, that's sort of a tough one. I, first one, obviously, I'll say Mike. Uh, listen, listen to what Mike says on the show. Um, you know, for conservatives, it's a little weird because we're sort of marinated in this, you know, what you call the mainstream media. So it, it's all out there. Uh, uh, but I, I like uh, Andrew Sullivan, uh, who is, you know, I, I don't know if you can really classify him as, as a liberal or what, how you classify iconoclast, him. He's sort of yeah. an iconoclast. Um, uh, but I, I enjoy him for uh, uh, you know, taking a different perspective. Uh, I also think, you know, typically the the New Republic, just in general, uh, is is a good place to start. Uh, it's if you're a, a conservative who wants to get sort of some of the thoughtful uh, left uh, as opposed to just the angry screaming left. Um, the Atlantic too. I don't know whether Mike, you'd consider call them, you know, left wing or not. I don't think the left wing, but they're certainly sort of ma mainstream media. Uh, again, there are a lot of things there, um, without naming individual authors, uh, who, where I think it's, it's, it's thoughtful, uh, stuff that, that can make you think and, and challenge you, but it's not, uh, uh, it's not just sort of the shouting. Yeah. You know, I, I think between on that uh, question of uh, the Atlantic and uh, I would say that would be, I think, a great recommendation. I do think they're, they're left of center. You know, I used to read the New Republic, but I feel like they've gotten a lot more partisan and a lot less thoughtful. They sort of tried to make themselves stand out. They become more kind of huff postish as, as I they well they they had they did have a, a you know the change of uh, management over the last year or so. I think and that's that's made a difference. I think you're right. It's gone from it, it is more clickbaity than than what it used but to be. But the Atlantic definitely, you know, and for me there are a number of folks who I would recommend. Um, uh, one is uh, Norman Ornstein, who actually was from the American Enterprise Institute. He's actually been on the show. I interviewed him a while back. Um, Brian Kaplan, uh, he's an although you can't. I don't know. I I would I'll quibble with you in that Norman Ornstein, although he's with uh, AEI, you can't really say he's a conservative. He's sort of the 
uh, again, sort of the uh, iconoclast of uh, okay. AEI. Fair enough. <laughs> All right. Okay. Uh, for, for more real conservatives then, I would say um, uh, Brian Kaplan's a little more conservative. Uh, he's an economist from um, George Mason, and actually I've interviewed him on the show as well. Um, this one will be people I've interviewed on the show, actually. Um, Tyler <laughs> Cowen, who's more kind of libertarian. I haven't interviewed well, him. No, it makes sense that you seek out those. We, we talk to those. Exactly. People. Exactly. Um, uh, one person who I think is great, especially in healthcare, uh, from a conservative standpoint, is Ovik Roy. And he does a great column for Forbes magazine on healthcare and you can subscribe to it. It's uh, highly recommended. Uh, and then I think a couple other people, uh, Bill Crystal from the weekly standard. Uh, I listen to his podcast. It's the daily standard. I think it's a great for me. That's the one conservative thing I make sure I check out on a really consistent basis because it's a nice short kind of podcast. They're usually like 10 minutes or so. And it kind of gives me a, a really strong, well thought out conservative response to a lot of stuff. So I would definitely recommend uh, the daily standard podcast and bill crystals on it uh, uh, more often than not. And then finally, I also I'd recommend a rich Lowry from national review, who I also think is a really sharp conservative thinker. I'd approve all those choices. All right, good. <laughs> glad to glad to hear it. All right, um, let's see here. Uh, let's see. We have uh, Eric here, but you know what? Before we talk about Eric, let's talk about Dollar Shave Club. Dollar Shave Club, of course, is the smarter choice where you can get a great shave at a great price that is conveniently delivered right to your door. Now, Jay, last time we were talking about Dollar Shave Club, you might recall. I suggested that their excellent razor blades and shave butter would be the perfect tool if you wanted to just shave it all off and feel the cool summer breezes against your fully shorn self. So, so I got to know, are you now fully shorn? I, I did not do that. You are Again, not fully I, shorn. I lost the vacation beard. Okay. Uh, but, well, that's uh, something. Other than that, I, I still look uh, sharp and clean cut. Okay. Okay. Well, that's, I, I guess, I guess that might've been kind of, kind of radical. Maybe if you were maybe embarking on a, uh, on a master swimming kind of career, you might want to consider that for, for kind of uh, resistance in the, in the water, but yeah. Okay. Fair enough. But you know, it would be a perfect tool for that. If you're thinking about doing that, Hey, you know, go ahead. And what I love about Dollar Shave Club is you get this great close shave at a great price. And plus, I just think it's super convenient to have blades and that excellent shave butter that's delivered right to your door automatically. That way you don't have to remember to buy blades and shaving cream and go to the store and get all that stuff. And Jay, Jay I know even though you didn't shave your entire body, you, you certainly shave your beard and or what beard you had and you had a great experience. You have great experiences with Dollar Shave Club, right? You know, like again, love love Dollar Shave Club. Uh, the the idea of uh, having to make these these extra trips out to, um, you know, and and look, I'll, I'll give a little uh, you know personal confessional here. Um, you know, when it comes to things like razor blades, uh, my wife doesn't actually buy them for me or do anything like that. She's sort of, well, you're on your own, figure it out. So that means I'd have to make an extra trip, my own trip, uh, out to. Uh, uh, wherever the drugstore or the, uh, uh, the, the big box or medium sized box store, uh, to do that. And, and it, again, it's one of those things that always kind of grates you when you're got to pay the premium price, uh, on top of making that extra trip and uh, dollar shave cuts that out. Uh, I think you get a, a great blade, great razor, uh, and super convenient. 
Absolutely. And you know, for a limited time, new members get their first month of the executive razor with the tube of that Dr. Carver shave butter for only five bucks with free shipping. And after that, razors are just a few bucks a month. That's a $15 value for only five bucks. And in that first month's box, you'll get this great weighty handle, a full cassette that has four cartridges and the tube of that shave butter. And after the first month, replacement cartridges will ship automatically at that regular price. No hidden fees, no commitments, cancel anytime you like, but you're not going to want to cancel. Trust me. You can only get this offer exclusively at dollarshaveclub.com slash TPG. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash TPG. Okay, on to our next uh, contestant. I was going to say that can't be right, right? Our next <laughs> listener. We should. Um, we should have some sort of a game show. Yeah, it would be nice. I don't know. Anyway, it's Eric who writes, listening to your episodes as a British citizen, British citizen, I can speak. I wonder why America, one of the world's richest nations, cannot offer universal health care, but is spending a huge amount of money on it. 27% of the budget, according to this uh, chart he sent me from nationalpriorities.org. How does it have such high costs when a country such as France only has to pay 17% of its budget on health care while having superior health care outcomes to the USA? Why are Americans paying so much for the health care for such bad value? As well as this, why is, single payer, why is a single-payer system so unpopular? In other European countries, saying you dislike universal health care is electoral suicide. Why is it okay in the USA? Finally. Why are insurers allowed to make a profit? Wouldn't it be better for the government to cover insurance without making a profit? Thank you so much for always providing reasonable content and a big thanks to Jay for making conservatism great and reasonable again. How about that? That's oh, well, really thank nice. you. Yeah. Um, then he says, Mike, thanks for keeping up the good work at making conservatism accountable. We will hopefully see a Democratic majority in 2018. Amen, Eric, and amen on almost all of your points. You know, I mean, I, I think you and I are kind of much more eye to eyes. Clearly, Jay is not. Jay, why don't you have at it? Well, you know, I think maybe the, the difference uh, is, and again, I, I it's a little hard. I can't speak to exactly what the the British experience or certainly the French experience is, but uh, in America, there's a, a strong tradition of the, I, I have my own doctor, my healthcare is, is my own, and I've, I've got my own control over that. Uh, and there's resistance to the effect uh, or to, to the, the idea of uh, the government being involved in that relationship and, and making healthcare decisions for you. For example, you know, who your doctor is going to be, when you're going to be treated, uh, that sort of thing. And I, I think that's just something that is in, in our DNA that is, is different, uh, than, uh, than it is in the, the European, uh, you know, cultural DNA. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, we just have more of a tradition of sort of the rugged individualism and, uh, keeping the government, uh, off your back sort of, sort of thing. So I think that's, that's a big part of the resistance to it. Uh, the other issue is, as you mentioned, the U S already does spend a great deal of, of money on healthcare, uh, in terms of entitlements, uh, that, uh, have been created, um, namely Medicare, Medicaid, and then other state benefits. Um, so, so we, we do that, but the, the population, uh, of, of the United States is big and diverse and in some respects, I think presents more healthcare challenges, uh, than, uh, than European uh, countries. So I think that's, that's the other reason why maybe you, if you say, well, there's, 
more expenditures for outcomes that aren't as good. And I might, I mean, I might quibble with you on the outcomes because that's sort of a big, that's sort of a big term. I mean, you could say that uh, there are some things that, that uh, U.S. healthcare does, does great uh, and better than anyone else in the world. Uh, and then there are others that, that they do not. Um, so I think it's where you're looking in that outcome box. But uh, I think part of it is just the, the, the vastness and, and diversity. Um, you know, I, I think there was uh, something I read recently that Ohio, or not Ohio, uh, U.S. Uh, Medicaid expenditures uh, exceed what, you know, the British pay for the national health. Um, so, a, again, it's, it's we're dealing with kind of just a bigger bigger picture, more people, and it's, it's more complex. Yeah, you know, I, I agree with you, Jay, entirely about the cultural aspect, certainly. Uh, and that, that really is, the, I think, the fundamental answer to, to Eric's question, I think. You know, I certainly would favor a more European-style uh, social welfare system in a lot of ways. But again, as you said, it's not in our DNA. The United States is very different in a lot of ways. And so that is the biggest reason why I think, and you know, we see this in other issues too, like the, like the guns issue, for instance, would be another example. And, and so we are just kind of different in a lot of ways. Now, as for the outcomes versus spending, I think part of the a biggest part of the problem here is the crazy way our healthcare system was was designed, and there are a lot of things to go into and in how uh, you know tax tax credits and other things. But basically, if you want an efficient system, I think what, regardless of what kind of system you're talking about, there are two ways you can go about it. Number one, you can try some sort of top down sort of thing where one where one buyer basically has the power to control prices or set prices. And, you know, that's kind of more a model where we see in a lot more European countries, or you can try a market-based approach where you actually have uh, correctly functioning, transparent, open markets, and that tends to drive down costs and raise quality. That's the problem. We have neither of these things in the United States. I mean, and that's one thing I think you can agree with me on, Jay, is that the healthcare market is not anywhere close to transparent and prices exactly are, are, uh, yeah there's you you can't really tell what you're paying for and and that would be sort of i think that's been a piece of a lot of the the conservative proposed reforms is the greater pricing transparency and greater outcome transparency uh but right it's it's difficult to tell because there are so many intermediaries here between your employer your insurer and then your provider exactly and you know so that, that's i think is the problem is you can go one of these two ways but we have is just this big kind of hash that's just sort of been developed over time and it and it that's why we have so much waste and inefficiency in the system and obviously that's a big deal this is why this is such a crisis in the united states because uh culturally we're not going to go to a single payer medicare for all type of system at least i don't see that happening in the near future but also there's uh, there's too much resistance to going toward a strictly market-based system. So we kind of muddle along and that was fine when healthcare was not nearly as technologically sophisticated and expensive. And it was a much smaller percentage of our GDP, but more and more, that's not the case. And, you know, and so we're, we're at kind of a, we're at kind of a crossroads and what are we going to do? Well, no one knows. That's a, that's a huge, you know, a huge problem. We have to do something, but God only knows what we're going to end up doing. So it's a big mess, I would say for certain. So, now, Eric also has. We will continue. We will continue to muddle through that. Yeah, well, and, we hope so. And I think, um, you know, another another piece just to throw into that is, in a lot of cases, most people, those who have uh, employer provided health care and and good coverage, are are pretty happy with 
with their healthcare situation. And that's that's the issue is there are a lot of people who are fairly satisfied and don't want to make a change that that could un, unsettle that. Right. And that's um, part of the problem with that, of course, is those people are satisfied because they're dramatically underpaying for what they get. You know, and with, with that it's in the whole issue of when cost is when when consumers don't feel the cost of things, they tend to over indulge in these things. And so now healthcare has some certain limits on that just because a doctor's visit is twenty five dollars instead of two hundred dollars doesn't mean you're going to schedule, you know, 10 doctor visits a week or something like that. But but still, it's a it's a dramatically malfunctioning market for a lot of reasons. So, but we are muddling through and let's, let's hope we can do better than that. But anyway, Eric had this addendum to his email, interesting addendum where he writes, could you do the eight values test? It would be cool to see where both of your results lie. Now I'd never heard of the eight values test and Jay, I don't think you had either, right? No, no, it was was new to me, but it was fun. It's a bunch of questions I ask you about your various views on things. Uh, And if you want to take it yourself, it's eight values. That's the number eight values, eight V-A-L-U-E-S uh, at uh, GitHub, G-I-T-H-U-B dot I-O. And you can take the test yourself. So uh, Jay, uh, we both took this test. Now, my results told me that I was a, my closest match in terms of political philosophy was a social liberal. Uh, and yours, I believe, said that you were a neoliberal. So I mean, a neoliberal, yes. And I was, I was a little taken aback by that, but yeah. Although, although I know I looked at my results and I said that that's pretty much in line with kind of how I am. I'm instead of an economic centrist, I'm kind of balanced in terms of the, the the diplomatic axis, what they call on civil liberties and civil rights. I'm pretty liberal, and on cultural stuff, I'm pretty darn progressive. They call it so. That's a I say that's a pretty good indicator of me. And for you, I know on the market thing, it had you being very strongly kind of libertarian on that, which. Totally Amen. Fits, right. Free, and, free my, and, and again, I was fairly strong libertarian on, on uh, some of the social issues and yeah. so forth, which might surprise listeners. Yeah, but, you were pretty middle of the uh, road there. Know, free, free minds, free markets. That's what I'm all about. Well, I like what it termed you on the, dip, what it called the diplomatic access. They called you patriotic. I thought you liked that, yeah. you know? I appreciate that. And yeah. it also said you well, were sort of the patriotic is sort of the nice way. I think they, they, the nice term for jingoistic. Nativist. But, yeah. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I guess you went a little but further. They call you outright, but it's interesting. And I would say, for most part, uh, although the the neoliberal, the actual the the term, yeah. I'm not sure that that's. If anything, I'm more like paleoliberal. You know what I mean? Classical, yeah. you know, Adam Smith kind of liberal, but yeah, but yeah, I you know I felt that what from what I know about you know you know, your views and what I obviously know about my views that it was a pretty good. I'd say it was a pretty fair indicator. It was kind of fun to take. So. Anyway, folks, uh, thanks, Eric, for suggesting it. And folks, if you want to try it out, it's again, it's 8values.github.io is the uh, web address for taking that. So, uh, all right. Uh, I think we have time for at least one more question. Um, let's make it from Tyler, who writes, Jay keeps coming back to this idea that renewables should live or die entirely in the free market and that government putting their thumb on the scales in any way is wrong and counterproductive. Fair enough. But shouldn't that also hold for fossil fuels? Fossil fuels have been historically and currently massively subsidized by governments worldwide. And that's not even taking into account the costs of pollution, which will kill millions every year and cost the global economy an estimated $5 trillion a year in unaccounted cost, according to the World Bank. So, Jay, what do you think about that? Uh, Should we be subsidizing fossil fuels to the extent that we are? Or do you take issue with what Tyler's suggesting? Uh, you know, yeah, I, 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 I think we, we do subsidize and this is part of the, what, you know, was often called, you know, crony capitalism that, 
uh, once folks get in there uh, and become sort of the primary source, you know, it's just, it's always little bits of, uh, you go to the, the legislature or the, uh, the, uh, the executive branch and there's this, Hey, well, this one little tweak in the code here can make us more efficient and this can help us a little bit. And, uh, over the years, those sort of accrete until they've built into a solid competitive advantage. Uh, so look, the, the straight ahead conservative Adam Smith type approach would be, no, you let's, let's not subsidize, uh, either. Uh, but to some extent, you know, there, there are always, uh, you know, subsidies built into just the economy. Once, once one sort of uh, power system, uh, becomes the norm, uh, it, it's sort of the natural way to accommodate that. I mean, it, it's almost like I, I talked about the, the whaling, um, example a, a little bit ago, um, that, you know, we sort of had subsidies, uh, in one form or another for, for that industry. Um, uh, so, so yeah, I, I'm as a as a pure free market person, I'd be uh, opposed to it. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, I'm not sh- I'm not sure the the best way to to uh, to to alleviate that, other than just sort of shining a light and saying, listen, uh, hey conservatives, uh, here's money that that uh, probably could be better spent other otherwise, or could be. Uh, if we just change this regulation could open it up to a freer market. Uh, but that's why companies pay lots and lots to lobbyists, uh, to, to, uh, sort of get them those, those competitive advantages. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and what about that? What do you think about the second part of, uh, of the point that he makes in, in that, uh, you know, there are these costs, there are these direct costs that we can measure, but there are also, uh, Tyler mentions uh, what, what economists would call externalities, right? Because we know that certain forms of energy production are cleaner than others. And we know for a fact, regardless of how you feel about climate change or other things, that there are you know, clear uh, damages that people suffer uh, because of certain types of, you know, uh, uh, fossil fuel industries, you know, there's no, I don't think there's any reasonable person who could say that there aren't more externalities associated, negative externalities associated with fossil fuels than with renewables. And the question then becomes, well, well I, I could, I could, I could, uh, differ with you on that a little bit in terms of often when we're talking about, say the, the amount of resources, if you want to build a, a wind-based system, if you were to, to, Given the energy density of, of wind, the amount of turbines you'd have to build, the mining, the infrastructure, the the steel to create these, uh, there's a lot of externalities there that aren't aren't factored into typically the energy production, uh, as opposed to that you know same amount being of gener- energy being generated from a coal plant. Well, I, I don't. Um, I, I wouldn't say those are externalities because those are those are all built into the cost of of, of what is what's being charged at the moment. The sort of externalities I'm talking about are what are the longer term effects of generating power in this way. And so, well, tell that to the tell that to the the dead birds. Well, yeah, okay. I mean, certainly, sure. No, no, and that's no. It's a serious thing. That is obviously that would uh, be an externality. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I mean, you know, I think it's a it's a reasonable question to ask. Is is that if you believe, even if you're somewhat skeptical about climate change, I think it's unreasonable that anyone who says that that human that human activity is in no way contributing to climate change. I think they're just at their head in the stand in the sand. I know that's not your position, Jay, but then if we know that there are costs associated that we're going to be passing on to future generations, should we make an attempt to account for those costs at present? 
And that's a reasonable sure. question to ask. Uh, well, uh, again, I, I guess the, the, again, the attempt to account for those costs at present, uh, again, my, my problem there gets to be sort of an actuarial question of uh, how do you measure those and then how do you discount those uh, for for what might happen in the future or what might not happen in the future. Um, for example, I think if you went back to 1970 and said, okay, we're going to predict what the uh, externalities, the, the additional costs are going to be uh, for burning fossil fuels 30, 40 years into the future, uh, and you looked at it and then looked at where we are now, you would say, well, actually, we've done a lot better, and it's it's a lot cleaner than what we had predicted back then, so you would have ended up overcharging. But Right. Well, I guess I would argue sort of, I would certainly agree with your point that it's difficult to to, to price these things out and discount for future technologies and other things like that. But I would also, I think, tend to err on the side of what you might call the precautionary principle, saying that, well, let's uh, let's make sure if we're going to build this in, which I think we should, that we uh, err on the side of ensuring that, given the fact that we only have this, you know, the one the one planet at present. Although Elon Musk, I guess, is trying to you know, real hard to get us to Mars or something like that. But given the fact that we only have the one planet, that we probably should err on the side of caution and uh, and price this uh, on the higher end to discourage the use of that and encourage the use of other uh, of other energy sources that aren't likely to uh, make uh, human life much more difficult to live in many parts of the world in uh, by say 2100 or so yeah well I would also say when you say price it differently what you're really talking about is is essentially creating a tax carbon tax yep used to be that, a conservative you know, idea this is some other money that goes to the government and I think listeners can make up their own mind whether whether or not uh, having additional money go to the government, uh, does does that solve your problem or does that make your problem worse in the long run? So Well, and, and of course, the whole point of the carbon tax with any tax, at least not with any tax, but when you tax something, you tend to people tend to use less of it. And so taxing something is one way to discourage use of something and encourage use of something else maybe to replace for, which is why one of the reasons, for instance, we have big taxes on cigarettes, which have huge externalities, obviously. And so I, I see sort of, I see fossil fuels sort of as cigarettes for the environment. And I think we should, you know, we should impose a pretty significant carbon tax. And again, this was an idea that started with, you know, conservatives, or at least was picked up by conservatives in the 80s and the 90s and, and was conveniently dropped when maybe it became uh, something that might actually happen. But that Sometimes that's a little bipartisan. Anyway, all right. I think that about does it for this uh, uh, Ask the Politics Guy slash listener mail show. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We hope you liked what you heard and that you'll check out today's sponsors, Blue Bottle Coffee. For $10 off your first coffee subscription, go to bluebottlecoffee.com slash TPG. Casper, where Politics Guy's listeners get $50 toward any mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash TPG. And Dollar Shave Club, where new members get their first month of the Executive Razor with the tube of their Dr. Carver Shave Butter for only five bucks with free shipping by going to dollarshaveclub.com slash TPG. You know, listener support's a huge help to us, and we greatly appreciate it. If you're interested in joining our, our super group of Politics Guys supporters, you can go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon link. And if you want to support the show without spending one thin dime, hey, you could share this episode with your friends and followers or pass along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter. And leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes also really helps. And if you've got a question, comment, correction, or just want to share a random thought with us, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. 
Our Facebook page where you can message us and where we post throughout the week is facebook.com slash page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. The show is produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Sunday. We hope you'll join us.